Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. And uh, welcome everybody else uh, joining us to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar. These are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. Um, our website is TAH.org, and it's the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, government, and civics, with a lot of resources for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, teach political science at, uh, at uh, Ashland University, and along with uh, one of my guests today, John Moser, and co-chair of the Master of Arts in American History and Government program here at Ashland University. So as you know, we are um, doing a series of webinars this year called Moments of Crisis. And in case you happen to be joining us for the first time, just so you know, the purpose of these is to look at a particularly important historical moment and pull together some thoughtful, interesting um, persons, some scholars to, to help us think these things through. And we're very fortunate today to have two very thoughtful uh, scholars joining us, um, Will Addo of the University of Dallas and uh, John Moser, as I mentioned, my colleague here at Ashland University and co-chair of the master's program. Thanks to both of you for joining us this morning. Um, nice to be here. Good, Thanks. glad to do it. John, you've been here before. As I mentioned, John's the co-chair of the master's program. Will teaches on our master's program and has been teaching with us for quite a long time. So great to see you both. Um, so I love this topic because uh, I love talking about especially Cold War strategy. So I'm hoping that one thing you'll both be able to help us do today, nice coffee mug, John. Uh, <laughs> nice plug. Uh, one thing you'll both be able Everyone to see that. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. So uh, one thing you'll uh, be able to help us, uh, both of you help us think through is sort of big terms. How does the, this event, the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, how does this affect, how does this come about as a result of U.S. and Soviet strategy, and how does it affect U.S. and Soviet strategy afterward? I'm hoping we'll spend some time thinking that through. Um, um, but maybe to start with, um, I mean, most of us know, you know, the sort of basics of this. It's a 13-day crisis, essentially, in October of 62. Uh, maybe one or both of you could start us thinking about um, how did this how did this escalate to the point that we're um, on the verge of you know actually shooting at each other? Can you sort of walk us through the escalation up to this point, and then we'll kind of see where you can take it any direction you want from there. John, you want, you want to start? Um, uh, sure, John, absolutely. Um, and then I'll uh, I'll try to be brief here, and then if people want to add to that, or, or John, if you want to add, uh, obviously feel free. Um, so I'll say, Chris, as you mentioned there, in, in mid-October, we get the first of the, the um, U-2 reconnaissance imagery there um, uh, that uh, you know, shows most definitely that there's the construction of these um, intermediate range, um, medium and inter intermediate range um, missile sites. And of course, then uh, that forces uh, quite um, quickly uh, a decision uh, on, um, on Kennedy's part and the Kennedy administration. I, that's one of the things I'll I always try to stress with students is, um, you know, how little time there is in some sense uh, to uh, come to grips with this 
um, situation. I think that's one of the things with respect to your question about, um, you know, how, how does it escalate as quickly as it does? Uh, there, was a, there was a formula that was published, a formula of sorts. I think it was in Newsweek, um, uh, you know, in the weeks or months prior to this um, uh, event. And that was that um, middle, I think the, the, the acronym was um, for middle range um, ballistic missiles. If you coupled uh, that with Cuba, then it equaled ICBMs, which was, of course, the, the notion that uh, if, if the, the Soviets ever installed nuclear weapons in Cuba, then they actually now finally had something they didn't have before, and that was an intercontinental um, delivery system. So you have to, you know, if you're Kennedy, the Kennedy administration, uh, you can't, um, and, you know, we can go into the particulars in terms of where the intelligence is at any given time. You know, do we know for sure how many missiles are there or um, are they already coupled with warheads and, you know, things of that nature? But, you know, but, but the fact is, is that you don't have all that information at the time. And Kennedy, of course, has to act in part uh, upon, the, you know, obviously the best intelligence available in that respect. Um, and so uh, you have to deliver a, a, an ultimatum of sorts here in the short run, because if you allow them to actually couple warheads and missiles, then you have this fait accompli and you have a completely different situation, um, you know, if, if in fact that happens. I mean, we know now that, um, you know, there was proximity uh, between the, um, the warheads and the missiles, but they weren't... Um, they weren't mounted, uh, they weren't joined uh, in that sense. But again, you know, Kennedy doesn't know that. So that's why I think in part this really um, quick uh, action, this um, sort of rapid escalation of things, uh, because simply there's just not time to. I mean, if they, if they get even these short-range or medium-range um, ballistic missiles operative, then, you know, you're talking about reaching as far north as Washington, D.C., and as far west, and I, I guess I'm uh, especially sensitive to this fact, uh, as far west as Dallas, Texas. <laughs> so, uh, um, you know, that's quite a swath uh, that is going to be accessible immediately. That's a great point. So just for clarification, both the missiles and the warheads we did know were in Cuba. Is that right? They just weren't. Well, work, uh, again, there's speculation about the number, uh, you know, the strength of them. There's no doubt about the missiles, uh, it, you know, in other words, the delivery system. And then there's no doubt about the fact that there's an installation or facilities that are indicative of what the Soviets would have constructed to um, house, to contain the warheads that they would then, you know, would subsequently, um, um, you know, uh, put on those missiles once they had them op fully operative. Okay. Was there some, was there some, I mean, were we absolutely certain that the warheads were there? Uh, I guess I've always thought maybe that one of the purposes of the blockade was to, was just in case the, the warheads weren't there, that, that we were trying to prevent the Soviets from actually bringing those so they then could, could you know, finish putting together their, uh, their delivery systems, but... Yeah, that's, I mean, that's true. And again, as I say, with respect, I mean, there's no question about um, where they're headed. I mean, where the Soviets are headed and the Cubans, um, you know, what, what, what they have in place in terms of, um, you know, uh, the, the apparatus necessary for the missile sites themselves. And then 
the um, the equipment, the holding facilities, that type of thing necessary for the warheads. But but you have to work upon um, you know some speculation in terms of whether or not the warheads are actually there or not. Right. Right. Turns out, of course, there, that there were. But it, when, when this thing unfolds immediately in mid-October, uh, that isn't known with certainty. So they kind of have to work on the assumption that they are, even if they're not 100. I see. Yeah, makes That's sense. right. And of course, you can't um, you can't afford not to right. Um, right. <laughs> uh, in that in that kind of situation. So, so John, please elaborate on any of this if you like. Sure. Will raises a number of interesting points as well, and maybe you can. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's important. That we, that we keep in mind exactly what kind of a crisis we're talking about here. Um, one of the reasons why this episode is so heavily studied by historians and political scientists is because there is such a huge wealth of documents, uh, on, really on all sides. And it's, in a, in, a, in a rather candid moment in one of the meetings of Kennedy's ex-com, Secretary of Defense uh, Robert McNamara basically says, from a strategic point of view, these missiles don't really make a difference. We already have, both sides already have the means to destroy one another. The fact that there are missiles in Cuba now means, yeah, some, are, some could get here faster. Um, and, 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 I, and there's an added danger if Cuba is given, is, is given tactical control over these missiles, which we know now is something Khrushchev was not willing to let, let Castro have. But this, the sense from I get from reading the the, uh, the 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 minutes of the XCOM meetings is that Kennedy and his close advisors regarded this as mainly a political crisis and a and a matter of prestige. It was political in the sense that Cuba had been a big deal in American politics ever since 1960 when Fidel Castro took over. Uh, in fact, it had helped build. Kennedy's campaign message in the election that year that uh, the Republicans had kind of been asleep at the switch and allowed communism to expand even into the Western Hemisphere. Um, so, in so in a sense, Kennedy had to take a hard line wherever Cuba was uh, was was concerned. Secondly, he had given a speech, and wasn't even so much a speech. He had issued an announcement in September of 1962, just a month before this that said, guess what, guys, we know, this was directed toward the Cuban government and to the Soviets, we know that there are Soviet uh, advisors and technicians in Cuba. We know that there are anti-aircraft installations being put up in Cuba. We're not going to do anything about that, but if there should come a time when there are actual Soviet combat troops or Soviet offensive weapons like medium-range ballistic missiles put up in Cuba, that this would be a this would be a big problem from where the U.S. was concerned. Once he made that statement, uh, it really became necessary from Kennedy's point of view to to, to 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 react harshly because, after all, he had put his own personal prestige on the uh, on the line, and of course. If if uh, if it became public knowledge that these missiles were there and the administration didn't do anything about it, uh, the Republicans would have had a field day. And it's very important to understand that as this was going on, midterm elections in 1962 were just a couple of weeks away. Kennedy, in fact, 
was on the campaign trail for Democratic candidates as this was uh, as this whole thing was going on, and and no whisper of this came out until he made his personal announcement on on uh, on television. Uh, John, if I could add real quickly there, and you correct me if I'm wrong on this, but kind of following along the lines of what you're talking about, there was, if I'm not mistaken, a Republican senator. I think it was Keating who basically Keating. said, "Look, it's they're there already." I mean, yeah. you know, and Kennedy essentially said, look, uh, if it proves to be correct, then we're going to be in – and he was talking, as you say, in the political context, we're going to be in – we're going to be in huge trouble here. Uh, right. And, of course, uh, as it turns out, uh, you know, Keating was on to something, as they said. Yeah, yeah, yeah that, that's, that's right. Keating was talking about this, but there wasn't a sense of – there wasn't a sense of national crisis about it until Kennedy made his announcement. Right. Uh, I see. That's really fascinating. The, the role that politics plays in this, and and the, John, you know, and uh, John, you mentioned in a way Kennedy had to save face here. I mean, really, that's kind of what, in a way, that influenced this, his decision ultimately to take a hard stand on it in light of the speech that you mentioned. And that reminds me. I don't want to shift gears too much here necessarily, but it reminds me of uh, the importance of face saving in general when it comes to you know the the uh, the strategies between the United States and the Soviets, and I'm. Called to mind, um, uh, calls to my mind, uh, even Kennan's long telegram, John, which I know you're, you, you've taught a lot and, and, and written about. And Kennan mentions that on the side of the Soviets, uh, the way they operate, his understanding of Soviet behavior is that a lot of times they'll be aggressive, but if you give them a face-saving option, a lot of times you can find it out to a particular solution. Did um, did Kennedy and others, do you know, did they were they did, did they consider were the, as they were, you know, I'm going to be clear here for a minute. We've got these great documents that you guys, I think, have recommended uh, showing the deliberations and the meetings and these other sorts of things. Did they did they consider uh, short of a of a of a blockade and uh, uh, and, and of course at, at one point or several points in these debates they were actually talking about airstrikes. But did they consider um, other means by which they could give Khrushchev a sort of out in, in which everybody could could kind of save face without coming there, to this. There, there. I mean, there was talk early on. I mean, the assumption on the on the part of the administration was that Khrushchev was looking to get concessions elsewhere, probably Berlin, but also a big bone of contention were the Jupiter missiles that had only recently been stationed in Turkey, and and something you know, often Khrushchev is, is portrayed as as really doing this as revenge right you're going to put these missiles so close to us you're put your missile so close to us we're going to put some close to uh, close to you the, the the problem with offering that early on was that the administration in a sense really wanted to punish Khrushchev for going beyond you know the the rules of the cold war had sort of developed by this time. And Khrushchev was now posing a direct challenge 90 miles from the United States. It wasn't good enough to say, okay, what's it going to take to get you to, to remove it? Um, it? Now, we know in the end, Kennedy was willing to, to pull the missiles out of, uh, out of, uh, of Turkey, and he would do that not, not long after this was, this was taken care of. But he always wanted to be careful to prevent this from appearing as a quid pro quo. That's fascinating. So um, I, I hadn't thought of it in those terms before. So in a sense, 
again, not to say this is the single deciding factor, but the, but the tough stand that we chose to take was sent, was meant to send a message to Khrushchev that you've kind of crossed the line here, right? You kind of, kind of broke the code, as you put it. That's fascinating. I hadn't thought of it that way. I forgot to mention earlier um, that we encourage others joining us to submit questions in the chat box, and several actually have, and we've got some good questions coming in already. And along the lines of what you were just discussing, John, uh, John is just wondering about the Bay of Pigs. Um, uh, he, he's asking, did the Bay of Pigs fiasco and the Cuban Missile Crisis have an impact upon Castro? But can we first address the influence of Bay of Pigs in, in these unfolding events as well? Well, go ahead. Yeah, um, I'm just going to say, with respect to the Bay of Pigs, there's a, uh, I think, uh, in, in large measure, a kind of a, a, um, mistaken notion about um, about how the Soviets and Khrushchev in particular interpreted that event. I mean, it's usually looked upon as, well, if you put it in, um, uh, you know, you sort of couple it, the Bay of Pigs, the whole business of the Vienna meeting, um, the Berlin Wall, all those kinds of things that that Khrushchev looks at those in, in essence as kind of indicative of Kennedy's weakness, um, and um, and the reality is that even though the Bay of Pigs was a fiasco, of course, from a military standpoint, I mean it was a debacle. Um, it nonetheless, um, and, and again, I think this has come much more to light, say, since 1990, I suppose, for obvious reasons in terms of the documentation that's available, but. But Khrushchev interpret, interpreted that as part of a kind of aggressiveness on the part of um, uh, Kennedy. And, you know, if you look at things subsequent to that, uh, there's Operation Mongoose and this ongoing attempt to get at Castro, um, then, you know, it, 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 it sort of puts a very different gloss on this whole idea that, um, you know, that, that it, it was all sort of brought on by Kennedy's weakness in terms of Khrushchev's understanding of it. In fact, you know, the reverse is essentially true. And um, John, John Lewis Gaddis makes uh, some uh, 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 sort of um, interesting observation, I think, in this respect, and that is that his, his argument anyway, and, and for my money, I think it's a pretty convincing one, is that uh, Khrushchev's first goal here in the sort of post-Bay of Pigs atmosphere was to save the Cuban Revolution, um, that that was his number one priority, uh, and that, you know, the, the, the whole, you know, we're going to redress the balance of power issue and those kinds of things was not, you know, completely unimportant, but that it was secondary to that primary goal, whereas Castro's interpretation of things was kind of just turning that on its head, that he saw this as sort of necessary, as he put it, a point of honor that they would allow Cuba to be turned in effectively to a Soviet you know, missile base, which in essence they didn't really want to do, but that it was necessary in some sense to be, you know, uh, a participant, right, in um, in the overall sort of Marxist-Leninist um, scheme of things, if I could put it that way, and that, um, you know, if we're beneficiaries by way of, you know, sort of uh, Soviet protection, that's well and good, but that's not our principal purpose in this. So that kind of runs counter, I think, a lot to what you typically see. I mean, if you pick up most university-level textbooks, that's really not generally, I think, the way this is presented. It's usually the former uh, and not the latter so much. 
Yeah, that's that's fascinating because I was also going to ask you both what did uh, what did Khrushchev hope to gain from this? I mean, in terms of big, I mean, short term, uh, we, we talked a little about a little bit, but big, sort of long term, larger, in terms of larger strategy, long term strategy. What did what did Khrushchev stand to gain from this, and how did he think it would affect uh, sort of future? balance of relations between the Soviet and the Soviet Union and the United States. And I hadn't thought of that aspect of it, Will, that, um, that in, a, in, a, in a certain sense, Cash, I'm sorry, Khrushchev is acting to preserve uh, part of the world sort of communist uh, movement, right, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, he believed it was very necessary for Cuba, per, if the revolution in Cuba were to be saved, in essence, then this is what was ultimately, uh, you know, necessitated, because... You know, they were going to get at, <laughs> that is, the, the Americans, the CIA, they were going to get at um, Castro. They, you know, they continued with their sort of plotting and, you know, there were going to be future assassination attempts, and there were, and that kind of thing was not going to abate any um, without this kind of, um, you know, strong showing ultimately uh, okay. on the part of the, on the part of the Soviets. So it's it really, I mean, the irony there is so thick in some respects as far as, um, Again, Gaddis said, look, both these guys were too polite to actually drill down enough in the other's opinion in their own to have a candid enough conversation to realize that what each thought the other's principal objective was was, in fact, not really the case. But they just never got to that point in some sense. You know, Khrushchev was like, well, I got to do, do this. I'm going I'm to do this for Castro. You know, Castro said he had a special fondness for Cuba. And, um, and then on the, on the flip side of it, um, you know, Castro's estimation of, of this was, well, uh, you know, this is, uh, you know, probably not the most eloquent way of putting it, but we're going to be a good team player here. So you want to do this. And so we're going to acquiesce in some sense. in it. Yeah, it, 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 it's important to note that Khrushchev's entire foreign policy or virtually all of it was based on the idea of supporting, quote unquote, wars of national liberation. And, uh, and this was a departure from Stalin, who honestly didn't care much about the rest of the world. He was focused on focused on uh, Europe and East Asia, I, I suppose. So he, was not, he was nice that uh, uh, so he was interested in, in Korea, obviously. But but Latin America, Africa, the Middle East, Stalin had no real interest in that. It was Khrushchev who really started the Soviet Union on a path of. Pro, of, of of trying to win over what was what was being called the Third World. And, uh, and so Cuba was, Cuba was his, his best example of this, uh, of this strategy bearing fruit, and he wasn't about to see it be taken away from him. That's fascinating because it reminds me, John, that in a certain sense, Khrushchev's overall strategy of supporting and spreading communism and uh, supporting other communist nations is in many ways just sort of the same, although the other side of the coin of of um, the Kennedy administration's uh, flexible, respo uh, flexible response strategy. Is that what it was called? Flexible response? Mm, that's right. Where on the other, I mean, you know, Kennedy had pledged, as you mentioned earlier, John, in various speeches, pledged to support every democratic nation in the world against the threat of communism, essentially anytime, anywhere, any, you know, and so on and so forth, using any means. Um, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric in that, of course, right? But... Um, but is the, the you, you, either of you or both of you think that, that that attitude of Kennedy's administration of flexible response uh, in any way made uh, Khrushchev a little more aggressive, uh, particularly in the Western Hemisphere? 
that's not a good question. Just skip it. No, it actually, I hadn't really thought about that. To what extent was, was Khrushchev responding to the difference between Eisenhower and, and Kennedy? Um, uh, because, I, you know, I, Kennedy had really represented, in a way, a reinvigoration of the Cold War. Uh, just the whole tone of his campaign, as I mentioned before, was that uh, Eisenhower, with Grandpa playing golf, uh, was asleep at the switch. And we know today that how much that that was a that, that was that was flatly wrong. Um, a lot of campaign rhetoric in the 1960s had to do with the so-called missile gap that the Soviets had had a, a, a significant advantage when it came to uh, to missiles. Again, it was it was it was complete garbage at the time. Um, and, and so it has to be everything Kennedy was doing has to be understood in the light of of how he built up the Soviet threat during his own campaign and how he built up the idea that 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 Cuba, uh, the addition of Cuba to the Soviet bloc fundamentally changed the, the, the nature of the balance of power. Hmm, that's a great point. By the way, you mentioned the missile gap and sorry, images of Dr. Strangelove flashed in my head. Uh, but sorry, uh, yeah. great stuff. We cannot allow a missile gap. That that's amazing, by the way, how that 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 caught on. Um, and kind yeah, of Chris, to... Chris, if I could just add in one thing real quick yeah, here, in, in addition to what John said, just yeah. in terms of the 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 falsity of that missile gap, I, it, it, it's so. As, I mean, I think John described it well when he said it's just garbage. It couldn't have been. I mean, the disparity was in 1962 something like. 17 to 1 in terms of strategic capabilities. Um, so it wasn't really even close, uh, you know, in that respect. So sometimes, you know, it's, it's posited in those terms, I think, again, you know, falsely so. It's not always presented up front and clearly just how huge this um, disparity was. At the same time, uh, the, the Kennedy campaign played up the idea that, that, that Eisenhower paid too much attention to, to nuclear weapons and had allowed the, uh, had allowed the, the conventional forces to languish. Uh, a, a famous book that came out during the campaign was from uh, General Maxwell Taylor called An Uncertain Trumpet that, that, that really lambasted the, uh, the Eisenhower administration for reducing the size of the, uh, the the size of the traditional armed forces, and saying that, and, and it's and it, by the way, it's also Taylor who championed flexible response, and he became one of Eisenhower, sorry, one of Kennedy's closest advisors. And in fact, uh, anyone who looked at those documents probably saw Maxwell Taylor's name because he was uh, he was deeply involved in these discussions of what to do about the Soviet missiles in Cuba, and he was consistently arguing for airstrike, if not even more uh, uh, more um, warlike response, up to and including invasion of the island. Yeah, ground, ground force invasion after an airstrike. Yeah, that, that really struck me, um, just how forcefully and consistently he made that argument. So... This is this is great stuff. So then, um, in terms of what Khrushchev hoped to accomplish here, just to kind of follow up on this, so uh, uh, prop up the the communist regime that is still relatively young in Cuba. Um, did Khrushchev go into this 
with the objective of getting Kennedy to withdraw U.S. missiles from from Turkey and, and, and Eastern Europe? Or was that something of an afterthought? Because as you mentioned earlier, John, we know Kennedy was was willing to do that after this crisis. And yeah. may have yeah, as, 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 Will, as Will pointed out, that was what the Kennedy administration thought that Khrushchev wanted, uh, okay. um, uh, which is which is why which is why the, this the discussion even came up, and Khrushchev looking for an opportunity to save face during his the, when it looked like the whole thing was blowing up in his face uh, uh, threw that demand in there, but uh, ultimately i think i think will is right to say that what 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 khrushchev really wants is to protect uh, protect its satellite state and uh, and what and, and and obviously you know khrushchev's hope was the whole thing could be set up right the missiles could be put into place and the united states would be faced with a fait accompli um, there was nothing that could be done short of launching an attack to destroy the uh, destroy the missiles and the assumption was that would have ushered in world war 3 yeah yeah, I was going to add there, uh, uh, Chris, um, with respect to Khrushchev on the whole business of the, the 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 missiles in Turkey, and you know those those things are painted uh, pointed, excuse me, um, uh, uh, you know at Russia. He, he, you know, his specific comment on this, uh, you know, in in the process, both prior to and then once you know the the the, the uh, sites were under construction, that type of thing was. I'm going to give them a taste of their own medicine, uh, in essence. Uh, you know, they, they, and his reference was to um, particularly the missiles in Turkey, as he, as he said, as he evidently was fond of pointing out to people when he took them to the Black Sea. Well, you know, look over there. What do you see? And, well, uh, this is what I see. And, then, and, and Khrushchev's response always was, well, I'll tell you what I see. I see missiles pointed at my DACA, you know. And, you know right. uh, so, um, you know, did he think he was going to get them to remove them, you know, by virtue of um, what he was doing in Cuba. Well, uh, I, I think he, whether he did or not, uh, and I'm, I don't mean to, to ride the fence on this too much, whether, whether he did or not, um, it's actually, um, a, a, I think, a not maybe well-known enough part of the meetings in the Kennedy administration, the extent to which that was out on the table or even put out on the table was a possible outcome. And of course, as we know, ultimately um, it was, um, you know, there's pretty solid evidence. And I think some of this works itself out. John probably knows uh, much more about this in terms of the particulars of the, the documentation of the meetings with um, Kennedy and um, the fact that those XCOM meetings were secret, secretly recorded by him and, um, but, you know, he was the one who spoke of compromise. I mean, he, he was the one who ultimately, despite all the kind of John Kennedy as hawkish on all of this, he, he was the one who spoke, if you really sift through it at the end of the day, much more about compromise. And there's even, um, again, I think pretty clear evidence that, that he was willing to withdraw those missiles from Turkey um, you know, pursuant to an agreement, pursuant to, an, to a compromise, if it could be done um, sort of out of the context, out of the immediate context of what was going on in Cuba. That, that, you know, this is certainly a possibility down the line, 
you know, whether that was, I don't, you know, a matter of months or something. So that it was sort of be a little bit, you know, of a, not, not, not coupled with, if I could put it that way, um, the, the crisis in Cuba, but, uh, it, it, it's sort of, and, 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 and there's also some suggestion again, I mentioned, um, John Lewis Gaddis on this Gaddis suggested, um, the, even a possibility of, um, on Kennedy's part of a so-called, uh, Turkish Cuban missile swap or exchange, which basically meant you get yours out, we get ours out. And that would be not necessarily the deal in its entirety, but at least a, a critical part of it. Yeah, that's fascinating. Again, it reminds me again of the importance on both sides at this time of, of not losing faith uh, in a way, right? Again, not just personally, but the, the whole idea that the, the United States can't lose face in these situations and nor can the Soviet Union. So, so I, I actually, I'm glad you mentioned that. And John, unless you wanted to jump in on this and add anything, I was going to ask about those meetings and in particular about um, the people that Kennedy surrounded himself who had a hand in, in, you know, in, in dealing with this crisis. Um, and John, you mentioned Taylor and, you know, Robert Kennedy was part of that. There were some interesting characters uh, around that were part of these, these meetings and, and deliberations. Kennedy said that he, uh, uh, that he liked to rely on what he called action intellectuals. Oh boy. So <laughs> they were, and, and, and or, 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 or the best and the brightest, right? He so so uh, these were these were all highly educated men, but they weren't uh, but but they weren't uh, from the ivory tower. Um, uh, McNamara famously uh, turned around General Motors. He had been a, been a huge asset to General Motors. Um, uh, Maxwell Taylor had been had been very important in his own right. Uh, uh, not he he, he was first became known as a commander of, uh, oh, was it the 82nd or the 101st Airborne? One of the, one of the two airborne, uh, U.S. Airborne divisions in, in World War II that was so highly, uh, highly decorated. Um, so, uh, so yeah, so, but, but, but of course this meant these were also men of extremely strong opinions and, uh, disagreed on a great deal of things. So it, it almost puts one in mind of the, uh, uh, well, probably not to the same extent as Lincoln's uh, famous team of rivals, um, but uh, uh, I would, I would, I think they, this group was probably more unified on essential things than Lincoln's group. But, uh, but still, I think the the comparison is apt anyway. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, so some of the other figures involved uh, wasn't Walter Lippmann involved in this to a certain extent, or am I misremembering this? Mm, well, he was a, I mean, he was a. He was still a very influential columnist at this point. Maybe I'm uh, drawing this from a. I think I'm maybe actually drawing this from a scene or a mention of Lippman in the movie, the you know, Thirteen Days. So maybe you didn't okay. play much of a role as a columnist. Yeah. Um, who, who? So in these deliberations, in these meetings, what were the? What were the? I mean, we mentioned Maxwell Taylor is at is is consistently calling for airstrikes and even possibly followed up with, with uh, ground force invasions. Were, were there, were there, uh, how, how, how divided were this, these uh, action intellectuals or, you know, the best and the brightest? Uh, what was the range of options that they were throwing out there and kind of where did they, how did they align themselves? Can we talk about that at all? Do either of you know? Will, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, well, there was a, you know, and <clears throat> pardon me, this kind of comes through, of course, in terms of the 
the second uh, the second of the three documents that we have there. Um, uh, McCone and Maxwell Taylor, uh, Dean Anderson are much more sort of um, uh, pro proactive folks in terms of um, you know we should consider uh, you know surgical airstrike first and then um, you know if if necessary follow followed up and I think there are, you know some variations on this as they expressed it but but then you know make ready for. Um, simultaneously make ready for the necessity of a ground game, a ground uh, campaign against Cuba. Whereas um, pr principally on the other side, although not exclusively, um, and I, I noticed one of the questions here earlier was asking about the attorney general. Uh, you know, of course, Robert Kennedy was not in favor uh, of a um, of an airstrike, uh, which he thought would be unnecessary, uh, you know, uh, sort of unnecessarily aggressive uh, by his own accord, uh, and that a, a quarantine, if you will, I just call it a blockade, but uh, uh, <laughs> that, that's what it is. Uh, but that, that that would have been preferable ultimately to that. So there there was this divide there, and and um, <clears throat> that's why I mentioned the extent to which. Um, and I, I'll confess, I would really have to drill down a little bit deeper to to kind of come to a solid conclusion if if this contention is correct, and that is that Kennedy utilized these meetings with the National Security Council, and particularly with the the um, the XCOM, um, to you know to 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 help achieve a kind of consensus. But not necessarily to change his point of view as to what it was that needed to be done uh, at the end of the day in the first place. Um, the, again, that was a, I mean that that was a, that was the subterfuge ultimately, or at least it was it was it was secretive, right? It was clear those guys don't know they're being recorded here. Um, it, it sort of begs a little bit of a question um, when you look at it kind of in toto and you look at Robert Kennedy's positions on this and the extent to which that, that clearly, um, you know, figured into the decision the administration ultimately made um, that uh, I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily prepared to say it was just simply you're going to rubber stamp what Kennedy's arguing for. I mean, I think he's listening to these folks seriously. Um but I also think at the same time that his the, the, the sort of compromised nature of his position was um, was fairly well set. He certainly wasn't going to be any you know you know Curtis Lemay. Let's go do it now. Any of this kind of stuff. Not not uh, not a chance. Yeah. If if, if you look at the uh, at the documents over the period where this is being discussed, the the, the first XCOM meetings. You see almost a consensus in favor of military action of, of, of airstrikes, and then there's there, one almost gets the sense from looking at that after reflection, some of them start backing away from it and, and realizing that, that that a this runs the risk of of a nuclear, of a, of a nuclear war certainly, uh, and then of course you've got the famous uh, the, the famous conclusion by. Uh, 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 by Bobby Kennedy, that, that I, I didn't want my brother to be the next, be another Tojo, right? We don't do sneak attacks. Yeah. It's not in the it's not in the American character. Um, so so yeah, there is there is a, almost a, a sense of of sobering up as they consider the various options. Um, so yeah, blockade, but but at the same time, virtually nobody 
Well, certainly nobody is saying, eh, what the heck, just leave them there. Almost nobody was saying, you know what, we should just open negotiations and try to find a diplomatic solution to this. So that so the, the, the consensus was pretty much these these options were too soft, right? The classic Goldilocks Goldilocks situation. Um, the, the airstrike is too much. Uh, diplomatic option is is uh, is is not enough. Um, there's really only one option left. The only question is, what do you call it? Right? Blockade. That's an act of war. So that runs certain risks. So let's. So we'll do the same thing, but we're going to call it a quarantine instead of a blockade, and it sounds better. <laughs> That's a great point, and that reminds me too. Then, so in, in light, well, it makes me think in light of what you're suggesting, John. The choice to go with the quarantine, as they call it, does that also have the effect? I mean, because that you know, look, they're drawing a line in the in the sea, and essentially telling the Soviets you will not pass, but even that could lead to a shooting war, right? What happens if the Soviets do that? Yeah, so, yeah, if, if, if the ships... Uh, I'm sorry, I cut, I cut you off. No, no, I was just going to say, does that if, if the Soviets were to pass that line and it does lead to shooting, does that somehow shift the responsibility for events back on the Soviet Union? If, that's yeah. not an, if a quarantine is not an act of war by the United States... It, it, it's interesting because it's sort of the reverse situation from the Berlin blockade of the late 1940s. Um, if we put so at that point, at that time, some were saying, "All right, let's let's get a heavily armored train to punch its way through the blockade." And uh, the conclusion was that that sounds aggressive. Yeah. On the other hand, if we fly unarmed transport planes uh, to West Berlin, at West Berlin. If those get shot down, then the onus is on the Soviets. They will have fired the first shot. So the reverse situation prevailed in 1962. If those Soviet ships approach the blockade line, it's the U.S. Navy that's going to be in a position of firing. So, yeah, it's it, um, the, the, the most dangerous days of the crisis are what follows the announcement of the, uh, of the quarantine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, I was going to add there, if you consider the military situation as far as the, the, the military reality uh, in the Western Hemisphere, um, you know, Soviets on one hand, the United States on the other, and you think about it from Khrushchev's point of view uh, in terms of what the real, uh, you know, the, the, the military situation is, and I don't care whether you're looking at nuclear or conventional, but for the moment, I'll just stick with the conventional kind of comparison there really isn't any comparison, uh, you know, as far as military events in Cuba would be concerned. If it comes down to the use of conventional military forces, um, then the Soviets, Khrushchev is at more than a little bit of a disadvantage. Uh, they don't have anything even remotely approaching, you know, the ability to bring conventional forces to bear that the United States does at this point. Um, Khrushchev had talked to Castro and, uh, it was either Castro, it might have been Che Guevara, one or the other, um, about um, what would happen if this um, turned to, you know, a, a, a military affair in terms of actual um, military action. And now this is, he's talking about, you know, once we're trying to send these things in, so this is sort of, you know, pre-October here. Khrushchev would say something to the effect of, well, w w I will send the Baltic fleet in, um, you know, to ensure that this, um, that this happens. Uh, you know, 
from a conventional standpoint, um, uh, that, that I think is a kind of, for all of Khrushchev's concern about the emotional response of the Cubans, uh, I, don't, I, I don't think that ends up being a very realistic prospect uh, for them at the end of the day. Um, so weak was their position, um, you know, conventionally, as I said, I'll just stick to that, in, in this part of the hemisphere. So, you know, Khrushchev has some very, you know, uh, substantial military realities to deal with um, that, uh, you know, whether you're one of the naysayers or not about the outcome of the entire Cuban Missile Crisis, you know, should something else have been, you know, gained from it or, you know, what have you. He was in a much more difficult position, uh, I think, than, than, than maybe is, is um, sort of popularly understood. That's very interesting. That reminds me, too, by the way, Will, Candy, it's a kind of related question. Candy submitted a question about the cone in particular, but, but among JFK and his advisors, um, thinking strategically in the politically, in, in terms of political strategy in the Western Hemisphere. Um, she, she asked if there was a chance that um, if we had undergone airstrikes in Cuba, would it have turned more Latin American countries against the United States? Do we have a sense of what other uh, countries in the Western Hemisphere thought about um, either, the, uh, you know, Cuba, let's say, at first, what did they think about the Cuban Revolution? Were they inclined to sympathize more with a fellow Latin American country, or were they more at this time still anti-communist? Was there a real threat that if Cuba remained communist, would that spread through other Latin American countries? Or how aligned was Latin America with the United States? That's a yeah. lot of questions thrown into one. But I, I, I look at the organization of American states in part on that, because um, you know when they had a meeting of the organization of American states, now it's the Cuban delegation that walks out <laughs> Uh, mm -hmm. in, in the face of all this. And, um, uh, you know, so that, that, that's, you know, kind of clear <laughs> in, in, in terms of their estimation of what's been going on in Cuba at that point. I mean, for all the, excuse me, promises about, um, you know, land distribution among peasantry and all the rest of it, you know, that, that, that those kinds of things are not exactly coming to fruition, right? I mean, Castro does essentially an about-face on those kinds of questions. One minute it's about, you know, land for everyone who hasn't had it, and then, two, you know, within the space of two years, from 59 to whatever, late 61 or early 62, you know, why, why, why would we give all this land to these peasants? They're only going to become large-scale large landholders, or that's at least what, what their aspiration is going to be. So, my, my sense is, and I'll, I'll, I'll uh, defer to John on this, but my sense is, with, at least with, with respect to that organization, that um, that they supported, uh, you know, a, a, how shall I say, a firm stand response to, um, you know, to Castro, to Cuba, and to this situation. Yeah, it, 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 I, I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the regimes of other Latin American countries were terrified by what was going on in, in Cuba because not, I mean, there, there was already talk at this point about exporting the revolution to, uh, uh, to other parts of Latin America. So, uh, yeah, if, if anything, uh, these Latin American regimes were harder core than the United States was. Uh, uh, they were, in, in fact, by and large, it, 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 without the support of certain Latin American countries, uh, the Bay of Pigs idea never would have even gotten off the ground. That's fascinating. That's fa I, had, I didn't know that. And that reminds me, too, by the way, of uh, 
the, the importance of the OAS as an organization in um, not just in, in this particular circumstance, but even thinking historically afterwards, I don't, I find it interesting that uh, even post Cuban Missile Crisis, we know there have been several attempts in, in Latin American countries at, at communist revolutions, and it's pretty rare that they've succeeded, interestingly enough. And so perhaps that has something to do with that, not just the, the importance of the creation of the OAS early on, but also um, the, the example of the communist revolution in Cuba, <coughs> excuse me, that you're mentioning, John. So. Now, Chris, you know, sometimes it's suggested if you look at the long, long term here, there's so many ways of looking at this, and I'm, I hope I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not trying to jump to to an end of anything, but no, no. just in terms of the outcome of of all of this, that um, uh, on one hand, that uh, you know, the, the presentation of the Cuban Missile Crisis is that you know that you know the Soviets blinked first, and it was a, kind of a huge signal victory, singular victory for the Kennedy administration, and so on and so forth, and and there's a debate and a discussion to be had over that, in, in essence, because on one, because Khrushchev doesn't see it that way. He, he's, he's, I'm not going to say misquoted, but he's always partially quoted on on this uh, issue because <clears throat> he doesn't see the Cuban Missile Crisis as some kind of utter failure uh, for the Soviets and for the Cubans at the end of the day. As he said, we we, we went in there to preserve Cuba. Uh, from you know American imperialism and Cuba was preserved from American imper imperialism. But on the flip side of that, with respect to these other states uh, and, the, and you know their sort of post-Cuban Missile Crisis evaluation of things, um, you know if you look at Cuba economically in the subsequent years, there's not a lot to hearten one uh, about uh, about the success of this regime. I mean you know. The fact that their economy is completely beggared, um, their their um, you know annual growth rate is negative. Uh, I think most years, if not virtually every year, um, not 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 a lot there to be um, uh, you know imp favorably impressed by. If, if if you know if nothing else, if it's, if it doesn't come from an ideological standpoint, maybe just sort of a practical reality of life in Cuba. That's great. Two things on this, one, one, one concerning Latin America, the other concerning Khrushchev. Um, Latin America, Latin American dictators had become very good at playing the United States uh, by exaggerating the threat of subversion in their countries. And this, by the way, began in the 1930s with the threat of Nazi penetration, um, because they understood if they played up the threat, they got more aid from the United States. And, and, and then they certainly became good at that in the post-war period, except simply replacing Nazis with communists. Um, the point about Khrushchev, uh, Khrushchev had an interest in downplaying the magnitude of this, uh, of, of, of this for, the, for the Soviet Union. In fact, from the, I mean, you know, Khrushchev is gonna, is gonna try to minimize this and say, well, look what we got out of this deal. But it, it, it's Khrushchev's time as, as leader of the Soviet Union. His days are numbered at this point. And one of the big reasons for his removal is, uh, is, uh, the, is the Cuban Missile Crisis. And in fact, probably, it's, I wouldn't want to say this is the only reason for the, for the Sino-Soviet split. Um, there are a whole, a whole slew of reasons behind that. The Cuban Missile Crisis is important uh, because, it can, it, because Mao is... is is disgusted 
at the unwillingness of the Soviet Union to allow Castro to launch missiles and, and, and start the war. Uh, Castro himself was disappointed, but, but Mao played this up, and, and Mao actually tried to make a bid for leadership of the international communist movement out of all this. I mean, it failed utterly. Albania was the only communist state to, to, side, with, uh, to side with China over this. Even Cuba said, you know, we're going to, thanks, but we're going to stick with the, uh, stick with the Russians. But um, this, this was regarded uh, by a lot of the communist world as, uh, as a defeat. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, John, pursuant to that, there was somebody uh, you might be familiar with who, it's just, it's one of those things that the, the, the quote is at least somewhat coming to mind. I don't remember precisely who said it, but it was, it may have been Khrushchev to someone in, you know, either Castro or as I said, it, it could have been Che Guevara, someone who said, I, I understand your willingness to die beautiful, <laughs> but that's not the point. You yeah. know, the point isn't to die. I mean, that's right. not, you know, if you, we're, we're so willing to go down, you know, in a, you know, in a nuclear incinerator, that's not going to help this, uh, you know, sort of revolution in the big picture. That's not actually, I'm not after the Mao model uh, on this. So sort of millions of, for human fodder out there uh, is not, is not our picture. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's one wonders. Well, first of all, would Stalin have ever allowed, I don't know. <laughs> it, had Stalin been in charge rather than rather than Khrushchev, would it have would would, would there have been a, a big difference in the outcome of this? Uh, as I said before, Stalin wasn't particularly interested in in the Third World, um, but uh, but but certainly with with the transition from Stalin to Khrushchev, you see the development of what would eventually be called the gerontocracy in the Soviet Union, uh, not. Young men who who were fired by the romantic ideas of revolution, uh, but elderly men who just liked power and wanted to hold on to it as long as they could, and and yeah, starting World War III is not conducive to that goal. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> uh, Nobody shirtless on horseback. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so uh, since we're talking about sort of the effects or the consequences and, and, and after this event. Uh, I'm thinking, I'm looking at two questions that were submitted earlier and, and, built, and drawing from those a little bit. Shailen, Shailen had asked earlier about um, whether the Soviets gave up the high ground by trying to secretly smuggle in the missiles into Cuba as opposed to the sort of openness with which the U.S. missiles had been placed in Turkey. But mm. I'm wondering, if, uh, building on that a little bit, John, you mentioned that the Soviets really lost face with China. What about, what was the effect of, the so of Soviet prestige, if you will, in Europe, and in particularly among other Soviet blocs, uh, Soviet bloc countries in Europe, or maybe countries leaning perhaps that way, um, in like Yugoslavia or something like that. Do we know? Would you uh, say, did this hurt the Soviet, put it another way, did this, did this affect Soviet goals in Europe uh, in the aftermath of this? Yeah, I don't, I, I, I don't know that much about that. I, I mean, all, to say that Eastern European states had a choice, they say, "Oh, you know what, China? I'm going to I'm going to go with China." They didn't. Albania, uh, Albania was in a in a unique situation because it was a little more it was a little more distant. A, it was a little more distant, and B, who the hell cared about Albania? It it, it wasn't it 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 simply didn't matter. So um, so Mao's challenge amounts to uh, amounts to nothing in the end. But 
the very fact that he mounted it um, suggests that 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 the, the Cuban Missile Crisis was was pretty important. Okay, good. But and, and and sort of another similar kind of question, but pointed back to the effect of this on Cuba. John Hazlitt earlier was wondering about the effect of this on Castro's regime. Um, it, did it have a did, did this help Castro's regime, or in, or was this really meaningless in a way to to Castro's ability to maintain control in Cuba? I don't know if if, if if you would disagree with me on this this will, but it seems to me that there is nothing that that Castro did differently in Cuba as a result of this. Um, he was he, he was deeply disappointed. He thought that Khrushchev had 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 caved on him, um, but. In the end, Cuba understood how dependent. It, I mean, Castro uh, understood how dependent he was on the goodwill of the Soviet Union. Um, I, I, I was just in Cuba in August, by the way, and, uh, and and just hearing people talk about what happened to what happened in Cuba and how the standards of living of, of Cuban people, which was never great to begin with. Uh, certainly under Castro, it plummeted after the end of the Cold War because really it was it was massive aid from the Soviet Union and the willingness of the Soviets to to buy from Cuba and sell to Cuba that really kept that uh, kept that country uh, and kept that regime going. That's a yeah, I, I, would, I would absolutely agree, and I would also uh, just sort of add a little bit of an addendum here. Um, um, it, with respect to um, Khrushchev's removal, you know, uh, within a space of two years, as John pointed out, um, cl clearly his performance in the in the Cuban Missile Crisis was, um, whether it was solely responsible or at least largely responsible, I think it would have kind of presumably have been part of a larger picture uh, of how Khrushchev had been handling things, and therefore he was essentially, you know, deposed, if you will, um, uh, as a result of that must have given Castro at least a certain satisfaction if you think about how angry he was and he was clearly incensed by the by the end result of this um, that um, that I, I, and I don't mean to make it too uh, how shall I say simplistic but but there was a, a, a kind of business as usual mentality of it for Castro I mean he was He's still the maximum leader. He still has the regime um, intact. Um, that, you know that hasn't changed. Um, you know in the aftermath uh, of all this, what he has, of course, is um, a guarantee from the administration that the United States is not going to, uh, you know, invade his country. Now, of course, you might, if you're if you're Castro, you might, you know. Um, kind of look at that askance for, you know, you're going to say anything's impossible. Well, probably not. Uh, but, but it, it, at the very least you, you've managed to, or the Soviets have managed to extract that, uh, from the United States moving forward. That's a good thing from his point of view. And I, I again, I'm, I'm sort of recalling, um, Khrushchev's commentary, uh, in the kind of post-mortem on this whole, uh, business, that uh, again, look, what what were our objectives for all this about the Soviets blinking first and the great um, 
the great singular triumph, the show of strength by John F. Kennedy and so on and so forth. We wanted Cuba to be free of, um, you know, American conniving and scheming and assassination attempts and, you know, intervention. And we, we've achieved that. Um, so uh, that's I'm, a great point. Not, not trying to give them the last word, but that's certainly an important part, I think, of the picture there. No, but, what, but what I take from that then, Will, is if there's a winner in this, it's Castro in a way. Right. Because they don't I mean, the Soviets don't get their ICBM delivery platform in Cuba. Um, and, and there is that debate over who blinked and the face, you know, the loss of face and things like this. But Castro's regime is secured. And if I understood John correctly, he continues to receive, I'm sure, some form of military aid. It may be small arms support and things like this and some some economic aid from the soviet union that does continue after this i, I believe right so yeah that is dried up per se um yeah. you know the military aspect of it is not obviously the same but uh yeah i would uh i'll throw this out real quick um and just simply say yeah I, when i look at it in that sense of course um i'm always tempted to say on one hand look if there's not a nuclear exchange that's obviously a good thing uh, what you know, right. people try to kind of game this all the time. You know, what was the actual chance of a nuclear exchange? I believe it was Dean Acheson, if I'm not mistaken, who said, "Look, when we looked at this, when I looked at this in the aftermath, even though President Kennedy, even in the midst of it, was saying he thought that there was a one in three chance of this going to combat and potential, you know, nuclear exchange." He says, "I look on it retrospectively, I'd say the chance is more like one in a hundred." Um, so I don't, you know, the the, um, the the sort of portrayal of you know one side alone blinking. I don't, I I, I have problem problems with by way of interpretation. And, and yeah, I, I think if you're going to look at it in terms of you know who who does best, uh, probably it's I'm not going to say Cuba. I'm going to say Castro and Castro's re, you know regime. Certainly, if right. you're among those. Um, you know, the Cuban exiles or those who were sympathetic to the Cuban exiles, this is not for the benefit of Cuba. So I'm not going to call, I'm not going to call Cuba a, a winner in this. I had a conversation one time with a, one of the, uh, Cuba, one of those Cuban exiles. Uh, uh, and um, yeah, that's the last thing you would ever want to say to them. <laughs> yeah. The Cuban people were not, the Cuban people were not winners, but right. But in the grand picture of things, uh, Castro uh, you know, maintained and strengthened his regime. Yeah, my gosh. I mean, look how look at his look at the aftermath for him in terms of uh, you know his his regime, his ability to maintain power unchecked. Uh, uh, it's 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 yeah. it's rather remarkable. And the United States <laughs> did come out ahead in the sense, as you were saying, one, there's no nuclear war, and two, there is no ICBM platform established in Cuba. So those are those are pluses. Um, John mentioned earlier the effect on Khrushchev and, and how that affected his lead, his leadership of the party. But 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 even though there was this distance between the end of this and the removal of U.S. Um, uh, uh, nuclear uh, missiles from Turkey, right, because of the distance, intentional dis distance, Will, you pointed out, the Soviets could still point and say we did achieve that in a way, because my understanding is they did, they linked those two things together. Um so okay, so trying to put a positive spin on things here to a certain. <laughs> so the, so the so the real losers, without a doubt, I, I think we all agree, were the Cuban people in this. But 
John, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go, um, yeah, I mean, a, a couple of other outcomes. Uh, both the United States and the Soviet Union are determined not to let things go so far. Uh, you see, for example, the, de the, the uh, development of the hotline uh, to instantly connect the White House with the Kremlin, um, it, whereas in the past you'd had to go by, by telegrams. Um, and uh, eventually the test ban treaty. I, I think both of those things were came came direct. I mean, both had been talked about before, but but the, really the impet the big impetus for these developments came from uh, from the sense that we came too close for comfort uh, in this uh, in this particular instance. And it's almost a kind of I hesitate to use the word detente because, you know, on the surface, things were, the relations were just as bad as ever between the, the two countries. But you can't really point for the remainder of the 1960s to another major crisis directly between the United States and the Soviet Union. I mean, obviously, you've got ongoing fighting against communist forces, you know, most notably in, uh, in Southeast Asia. But, uh, but, but nothing really comparable to, uh, uh, to the, the, the U.S.-Soviet crises that had occurred in the late 40s and, and, and you know, once in a while in the, like the U-2 crisis uh, at the end of the uh, Eisenhower uh, administration and then the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, those are great points, John. And thanks for mentioning the, 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 the test ban treaty. Thomas had asked about that earlier, and you just answered his question about the role that the Cuban Missile Crisis played in, in bringing that about. So Candy also just submitted a question. This is a tough one. Uh, do we have a sense of what the Soviet people knew about what happened during those 13 days in October uh, or why Khrushchev was removed? Now, this is a tough question, as you both know, because records, public records are so secret and are still just sort of, uh, to the extent that, they're, that they remain, are, are still not entirely released. Um, so, so if you know anything about what the Soviet people thought about this, I'd be interested in your thoughts on it. But I also want to know what what the American public thought about this. What was public opinion in the United States like, especially during and perhaps immediately after this crisis? And if I could just add one more thing to that, John, you mentioned something I'm really fascinated with earlier, which is the sort of political situation in the United States with midterm elections coming up. What was the what was the effect of this on? on politics in the United States. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's fair to say that this would be regarded as uh, JFK's signal achievement. Um, this and his assassination are probably the sources of, of, of really all of his reputation. Because if you look at JFK's actual administration, uh, he, didn't, he didn't accomplish much, much at all. In terms of uh, of domestic politics, his, his foreign policy in general didn't bear a lot of fruit. Um, I, I think uh, he, yeah. Uh, so so much of his reputation is built on, uh, on on the belief that he successfully handled this crisis. Um, because it, how did this look to the ordinary American? I, and I've I've talked to my parents about this. My parents graduated from high school in the spring of 1962, so they they, they very much remember the, uh, the the terror. I mean, it, people were really frightened by this crisis, and when it was resolved peacefully and apparently in favor of the United States, there was a tremendous sense of relief. And it carried over to the uh, to the midterm elections. Now, traditionally, 
the party in power, the party that holds the White House, loses seats in a midterm election. And uh, in fact, the Republicans did uh, pick up uh, pick up four seats in the House, uh, but the Democrats, in fact, won four seats in the uh, in in the Senate. So this was uh, this this suggests that. The crisis rebounded to the uh, re- uh, rebounded to the to the benefit of the um, of the Democratic Party and to the, the administration. That's fascinating. Yeah, I remember uh, my parents uh, also talked about this and the 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 the, the, the sense in the '60s that nuclear annihilation, absolute complete nuclear annihilation, could happen at any time, and uh, yep. close became, and that that general sense of day to day or you know sort of fear of the possibility of these things it, it did weigh heavily on the minds of Americans and. Uh, and so when you don't end up with that, the sense of relief naturally is going to say, you know, put you in a position to think, you know, thanks, Kennedy, for not allowing that to happen. So I, that's a great point that you made. Um, yeah, Chris, I was going to say with respect to, with, with apologies to Candy here, I can't say much that would be anything other than speculation about Soviet public opinion. Yeah. But, I, but I would at least offer up just one, one thing, and that's that... Khrushchev is in a much better position, obviously, to control the the message or the lack thereof um, than 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 is Kennedy uh, in that respect. So I think um, when you look at the different political regime, the nature of the two governments, um, it certainly you know changes the dynamic depending upon which one you're in. I mean, not only is as has been pointed out before, was Kennedy in a democracy? which presumably demanded certain things. But uh, on top of that, um, he was from the Democratic Party, which you know demanded even some additional things, I think, in, in that particular context. But um, That's a great point. so I just, you know, speculative on my part that, um, uh, I, you know, whether you want to call this assuming the worst or not, that, that the message that would have been out there for the Soviets was one of kind of the big V for victory, uh, that it was a... That um, you know we 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 had um, set out to do something and had in fact done it even yeah. if we um, you know didn't leave the missiles in place. That the point was, did we get what we wanted? I mean, again, um, I know I keep referencing I've ref- referenced John Lewis Gaddis, but I find his work on this um, uh, pretty pretty um, uh, convincing in many respects. Um, and that is that in the aftermath of this, that the Soviet position was. Um, and not certainly not with respect to China, as 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 John uh, rightly pointed out there, but but that um, that they were able to successfully portray things in the aftermath of all this. That their stature was enhanced ultimately um, through uh, presumably through at least their satellites at any rate, and maybe maybe throughout much of the third world where they were trying to have uh, influence. That um, that no, you, you know, the U.S. the imperialist, you know. Power was not able to topple this regime. We saw to that. Yeah, that's a great point because, of course, within the Soviet Union and and in its its sphere of satellite nations, the the official party line is everything was a victory, right? So, <laughs> right. so it's, um, it's the effect outside of there that's interesting. Go ahead, John, please. I'm because I, because I'm, I I was very interested in this question. I just now did a little bit of googling on it, and uh, from a site that uh, appears to be reputable. Um, suggests that, uh, that 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 Pravda Izvestia provided almost no information about what was going on. Simply that 
the Cuban people were being oppressed by the Americans. The Americans were trying to, to undo the revolution. Uh, American warmongers were making demands uh, and that the Soviet Union would stay firm behind its ally. It, it, yeah, it was. It, so um, my inclination is to, to say that the average uh, Soviet citizen would have um, would have heard would have known almost nothing about what was going on. By the way, we often do ask for book references, uh, further reading from uh, um, scholars that join us, and, and uh, you uh, both mentioned John Lewis Gaddis. The Strategies of Containment is a, is, is, is a great book. That may be what you're referencing. Are there yeah, Chris, I was actually thinking of that, and also his, his later book that was the result of his initial look into the Soviet archives, and that's We Now Know. Oh. So we Now Know. I, I, I can recommend another one. It's uh, it's called One Hell of a Gamble, Khrushchev, Castro, and Kennedy, 1958 to 1964, The Secret History of the Cuban Missile Crisis. And it is truly an, an, an international history uh, that looks more or less equally at all the at all sides of it. Uh, the authors are A.V. Fursenko, F-U-R-S-E-N-K-O, uh, Alexander Fursenko, and uh, Timothy uh, Naftali, N-A-F-T-A-L-I, who's a, an excellent diplomatic historian. Uh, but, but of course, any, you know, anything Gaddis that writes, anything Gaddis writes is good too. Great, thank you both. That's very useful. So we have a minute or two left, and I kind of hesitate to throw this question out there, but it's too tempting. Um, question submitted from, uh, I believe it was Thomas. Um, in the large scope of things, Thomas says, you know, he's heard and read that this, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis, is the most important moment in presidential history. Um, agree or disagree? I guess maybe he's wondering how, how do we rank this crisis among other great crises? Is that fair? Is that a fair question, or is that even possible? I, oh, it's got to be up there. Uh, I, I don't know that I would. I, I don't know that. It's as dire as what faced Lincoln in, you know, in 1860, 1861. Um, but uh, I, I'd probably put it in the top five. Okay. Or yeah, FDR I mean, after Pearl Harbor? I don't know. I don't know that. I, I don't know that Pearl Harbor was as. Uh, yeah, I, I would. I would rank it ahead of Pearl Harbor, just in, just in in the sense that. Uh, everyone understood what Pearl Harbor meant. We're, we're going to go to war with Japan, and and Pearl Harbor did not, in the end, significantly significantly undermine the power of the United States to fight Japan. So it was pretty clear that although you know the attack was 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 important and shocking, uh, it um, the United States was not in danger in a way that it was in 1962. Or in 1861, for that matter. Yeah, difficult to say. I, I absolutely agree with John in terms of the, the it's got to be way up there, I think, uh, in any legitimate list, whether it's your top five or your top three or even your top one. Um, uh, I think there, there might be a kind of apples and oranges in, in part going on here. When Lincoln's crisis, you know, the crisis of the union, is there going to be a union or not, um, you know, when leaving for the moment, what's going to happen if, in fact, there isn't, uh, you know, a percent to the question of slavery and so on and so forth. Um, I wouldn't want to rank this ahead of that. But uh, on the other hand, 
you know, this is of a different nature. That is to say, you know, when we talk about leveling things, we really mean leveling things. I mean, if, the, if this goes <laughs> the wrong way, it's, it's really, um, uh, I mean, it's the end of the union, uh, you know, but uh, uh, in a very permanent sense there. So I, it's just a very, very, you know, kind of different scenarios there that I both think, I, I don't want to say this is one and this one's two. I mean, if somebody's going to press me to it, I'm going to probably go with Lincoln, uh, and the, you know, the crisis of union, um, because as John says, that was much more real, I think at the end of the day, in terms of a reality, uh, you know, there is a civil war, there is secession, there is a civil war, there is a war on for the life of the union. And, and the, you know, the sort of flip side in terms of the Cuban missile crisis, again, I, this is a little bit like a crapshoot at the end of the day, because who knows that, you know, what you can say about the odds of there being a nuclear exchange, but retrospectively, it seems less than what might have been most people's sense, um, you know, at the time. Great points, both. And so thoughtful. We would expect nothing less from, from both of you on these things. So uh, this has been a great webinar, great discussion, fantastic um, insights from both of you. And I, I thank you both very much for your for your time and your expertise on these things. And hopefully we'll do it again sometime in the future. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. Great day, guys. Thank you. you too. Thanks. thanks to everybody joining us. Thanks for some great questions. Um, uh, look for an email from us. I forgot to mention this earlier in the next week that will have a link uh, by which you can both access the archived video and audio from today's discussion and uh, a link that you can request a certificate by which you can request a certificate of participation for this webinar. So um, look for that email in the next week. Uh, our next Saturday webinar will be March 3rd. It's a Saturday, of course. And the topic, the crisis is Bloody Sunday in Selma. So I hope to see you all then. And until then, take care and thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs, as well as information about future programs at TAH.org slash webinars, or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.